0: Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a great new show for you today. I'm here with Jeffrey Gurrock, Libby M. Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University. He's joining me to discuss his new book, The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community, published this week, actually, in 2016 by New York University Press. Jeffrey, welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with your community.
0: Excellent. Well, this isn't really your first time researching the Jews of Harlem. Your first book, When Harlem Was Jewish, 1870 to 1930, dealt with the subject. So what inspired you to return to this topic? And those of us who have read your first book, what's maybe changed?
1: Well, it's a very very different book. Uh, I got interested in redoing the book primarily because I became aware of the transformation of Harlem in my own day, and the fact that Jews were returning to the neighborhood, and that, in fact, uh, there was a larger story to be told than the original story. In fact, the book really has two components to it. The first half is a, re- a total rewrite of when Harlem was Jewish, based upon the fact that if I look back at my career over the last 40 years, it's almost 40 years since the first book appeared, I realized that so many of the things that I did in the scholarly world emanated from the initial Harlem book experience. So, for example, uh, some of your listeners might know that uh, I wrote a book about Judaism and sports called mm-hmm. Judaism's Encounter with American Sports. And one of the conceits of that book talks about how synagogues evolved in the 1920s, 30s, and beyond with the idea that ultimately we want to induce young men and young women to come to pray but the way you get them to the synagogue is to play. That idea came from initially the fact that the first incarnation of what we call the synagogue center began it began in Harlem at the institutional synagogue in the 1910s. So in a sense, when I wrote this book, this new book, I took all that I had done in scholarship in that first half and brought it back into play. She wrote one other component. One of the things that I think is emblematic of the type of scholarship that I do is that I've been very interested in the blurred lines of demarcation between what uh, we consider Orthodox Judaism and conservative Judaism in the 20th century. And my link to that was the fact that in one of the major educational institutions in Harlem in its heyday before World War I was the Uptown Talmud Torah which had both Orthodox and conservative people on its Board of Education. For example, from the Jewish Theological Seminary, you had Israel Friedlander. From the Orthodox community, you had Rabbi Moses Zavulin Margolis, better known as the Ramaz. And the educational director who oversaw much of the activities was none other than Mordechai M. Kaplan. And then later on in my career, I wrote a book with Rabbi Jacob J. Schachter on Mordecai Kaplan and his relationship to the Orthodox community. So I'm very grateful for that initial uh, experience writing about Harlem, and in this new book, this old new book, the first half, brings all that I've done, not all, but a good portion of what I did in scholarship over the last two generations back into the book. And the other half of the book is the story of Harlem from the time that Jews leave the neighborhood in the 1930s up to the present day when Jews are back as part of the gentrification of Harlem and the fact that since uh, at least 10 years ago, there are more Caucasians than African-Americans in the neighborhood. And one final point about the old book, the new book, and my interest. What got me interested in Harlem to begin with 40 years ago was the question of black Jewish relations. Hmm. And, and, um, my professor with Columbia at that point, Sveon Corey suggested, who is not an American Jewish historian, that to do the story right, you might want to look at a neighborhood where Jews and blacks live together and interacted together on a, on a daily basis. So she, you can imagine me sitting in, in Fairweather Hall on Morningside Heights at Columbia University, and looking out the window, and looking down the bluff, and seeing Harlem. And it was a aha moment right about Harlem. So, in a sense, this new book brings the story full circle in terms of now writing about uh, Jews and blacks after Jews leave Harlem, some of the tensions, some of the cooperation, and now the era where there seems to be, at least in my view, at least in that neighborhood, a pretty harmonious relationship between the two very different ethnic and racial groups so that that's the basic reason for writing about Harlem past present and thinking a little bit about the future.
0: Excellent. And not only does this really seem to fuse so much of the scholarship as you noted that you've done since your first book, but also I really learned um, in reading your new book that you have a really personal connection to Harlem. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about your own family history and to what extent that might have influenced your interest in this area.
1: Well, two points. First of all, I always knew that I've told audiences around, literally around the world, that my father grew up on Park Avenue but It was Park Avenue and hundredth Street in, in a old in a cold water tenement. But to be honest about this, forty years ago when I first started out in this business, I I would never have written anything of a personal nature. So I'm an older fellow now, you know. I'm I'm in my sixties. In a lot of the things I've done recently, there have been some personal pieces brought in. Uh, I wrote a. A book about Orthodox Jews in America and the opening chapter deals with what it was like to be a boy growing up uh, in the East Bronx in the 1950s in an Orthodox synagogue. My sports book has a lot of autobiographical stuff in fact a dear colleague, a dear late colleague Lloyd Gartner reviewed the sports book and said uh, there are two Jeff Garrocks in this book. There's Jeff Garrock the scholar, and there's Jeff Garrock the jock. <laughs> right. So and I, I accept that. That's really, that's really fine. Now, in this, in this book, talking about families that moved from Harlem, I decided to devote uh, two paragraphs to my family's saga. The family came from white Russia in 1905, and they there was no room for them on the Lower East Side. They moved to Harlem. And they lived, uh, four of the boys shared one bed on 100th Street. And the family ended up in the Bronx. It was a very typical migration pattern. And one of my uncles, I admitted in the book without any problem, uh, probably the the brother who did the best early on, uh, was a bootlegger. And he ran ran with Waxy Gordon's gang. So at this point, um, running about the personal, I'm very comfortable about doing it um and frankly as i look at the first book as compared to the second one and this is a very self-serving remark but i'll make it anyhow
0: go for the it the older
1: the older you get the more that you do the more that you write i think the better you get as as a writer you know you have kids who are 14 years old who are in harvard doing differential equations of mathematics that's not what we are as historians uh, the more we write the more More personal, and the voice is different. So, uh, yeah, the 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 Garaks appear in the book for at least um, uh, two paragraphs, so that uh, when relatives of mine read this book, they will not say the book is boring because the family was not uh, mentioned in the first book.
0: (laughs) And as you said, you know, your family um, came to Harlem in the first decade of the twentieth century, but. Your book really starts tracing the roots of this community from the 1870s forward. And I'm wondering if you can tell people a little bit about the, this first generation, let's say, of um, Jewish residents of Harlem, why they came to the area, and um, you know who else was there at the time? Paint me a picture of early Harlem settlement.
1: Well, remember, New York City, until the late 1890s, consisted of one borough and a portion of the Bronx, Uh, That's Manhattan and a portion of the Bronx. Brooklyn and Queens, of course, were separate areas. That's Long Island, a different island, um, dating back to the the 17th and 18th century. In any event, um, in the period before the 1880s, to move from the Lower East Side to Harlem was almost like we often talk about during this time period, peddler sagas of people who leave the urban areas, and they strike out and they establish small entrepreneurial activities away from the city. That's what it's like to live in Harlem. So we have handfuls of Jews living around 125th Street, um, uh, east to west. Uh, I was able to identify uh, a number of families. In fact, in fact, one other piece about this book, which is new, um, let me just throw a bouquet at Ancestry.com. I was able to identify one family, Israel and Emma Stone, I was able to trace their lives in Harlem and beyond from the from the 1860s uh, down to the 1930s and even beyond. So to live in Harlem was to live apart from the city, living in a almost rural environment, and although I, I don't say this humorously in the book, I'll say this humorously to you, um, if you lived in Harlem and you wanted to get downtown to the Battery, the only way you could get there was either by horse-drawn omnibus or during the summer a steamboat took you from 125th Street and the East River down, downtown and the ride would take between 45 minutes to an hour. Today, in 2016, it takes between 45 minutes to the hour to do the same trick. So uh, things have changed, but in some respects, they haven't changed. In any event, these Jews live in a, um, a WASP community. As far as I can tell, there's very limited anti-Semitism. In fact, uh, I came across a, a speech made by a Colonel, Alonzo Caldwell, um, who had served in the Civil War, who speaks at the uh, the Harlem YMHA in the 1870s. And interestingly enough, right now, literally right now, a, a JCC is being established in Harlem uh, more than 100 years after the last JCC closed. And he said, uh, Harlemites, you should buy your shoes at Zabinski's and you should buy your clothes at Israel Stone's store. So I lucked out. I had a store <laughs> which linked my story with the story of Jews in Harlem. But we're talking about a very small community, and the reason for the smallness of the community is, what I suggested a few moments ago, the absence of rapid transit. It's only in the uh, 1880s and then beyond that first elevated railroads uh, come up to Harlem, and then after the turn of the century, the subways make it to Harlem, making it possible for people to either move uptown and commute, and Shira, for me as an urban historian, uh, commutation, rapid transit, those types of dynamics, which I I studied with uh, Professor Kenneth T. Jackson at Columbia a long time ago, uh, a great historian and a good friend, is very important understanding how cities develop and how groups live in that area. So that's that's the early that's the early period of Harlem. There's a uh, one synagogue, which is today Temple Israel. Later on, it would attract people like uh, Cyrus Salzberger of the New York Times fame and other distinguished and less distinguished German Jews.
0: And as you mentioned, I really think for anyone really interested in urban development more generally, this book really gives you a good sense as to city planning and waste management and all the other elements in between. Um, as more Jews start finding their way to Harlem at the end of the 20th century, I'm wondering, um, if you can say a bit more about this relationship to what I think most people think of as the quintessential Jewish neighborhood of New York City, that of the Lower East Side. What kind of relationship, if any, was there between these two locations?
1: Well, (coughs) in the early 20th century, two types class-wise, economically, end up living in Harlem. On the one hand, you have people like my parents, my grandparents, the Garaks, who were working class people. And then you have people who are lionized in one of the great uh, immigrant novels of the early 20th century, The Rise of David Levinsky, people who lived downtown and then he moved uptown to the, to the wide thoroughfares of Lenox and 7th Avenue and lived in these uh, beautiful buildings, which, by the way, today... Are being rehabbed and people living in the same buildings uh, in very opulent settings. If you move from the Lower East Side because you're moving out of the neighborhood, then to a great extent you are severing the connections downtown. But one of the points that I make that I made in the original book and it's only amplified here that significant numbers of poor, working class, sometimes radical Jews are pushed out of the Lower East Side, and you mentioned this key term, urban renewal. One of the things that goes on downtown in the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century is that to relieve overcrowding, uh, public parks, swimming pools, bridges, new law tenements are built, and that makes life better for those people who live downtown, but for poor people, there's less room downtown. They're moved uptown. And I think one of the messages of the book, which I talk about at the end, in terms of looking at New York's history, is that urban renewal, which is a constant in this dynamic city, has both its pluses and minuses. So if you're a poor person and you're pushed you're pushed out of the Lower East Side before you want to you want to maintain a connection both culturally, religiously and politically downtown so there's a very vibrant ring workman circle branch in Harlem I have a very nice picture in the book of an um, uh Sunday school class or high school class actually. Uh, the Socialist Party is very powerful in Harlem. they attempt to elect uh, a congressman from this district emulating what happened downtown just a few years uh, earlier. You have uh, a yeshiva community uptown, just like downtown, and they they see themselves as an extension of the downtown community. So sometimes when I lecture about the book and people raise their hand, they say they have relatives who uh, lived in Harlem, I ask them if they know where they lived, and based upon where they lived, I can say, well, obviously your parents, your grandparents were were tailors or other work or construction workers. And they say, how do you know? Well, Because depending on depending on where you lived in this community and, and, and sheer Harlem is not one community, but, a, but at least two communities of Jews. Very, very different stories. And the two uptown communities, the poor and the more affluent community don't always get along which is also also an interesting story to be told.
0: And not only are there these class distinctions within these um, Harlem communities or the community, depending on how you want to define it, one of the things I found very interesting about this book is your incorporation of non-Ashkenazic Jews into the story of Harlem, um, even really from the founding of this neighborhood. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that.
1: Well, in terms of the evolution of the field, I have to tell you, Uh, A colleague of ours, Aviva Ben-Ur, about eight or nine years ago, figuratively took all of us to the woodshed because she argued correctly that most of the major or less than major works on Jews in New York, whether it's my work or my good friend Deborah Dash Moore's work or others or Hasya Diner's work, all important scholars. Really didn't deal with the Sephardic community, and there, in fact, there's a Sephardic migration to America, not nearly as large as the East European migration in after the turn of the 20th century, and uh, there's a component, a Sephardic component in uh, in Harlem. So I'm I'm very glad you you picked up on that because I felt this time around it would be important for me to tell the story of. Those Jews, as well as the uh, the Ashkenazi Jews, and while we're on the subject of uh, people that I left out last time and brought in this time, in the original when Harlem was Jewish book, there's a footnote to the existence of black Hebrew uh, a black Hebrew congregation, right, or a right. number of, of black Hebrew congregations, and I decided to be more. Uh, I thought it was appropriate to talk about them as well. And to talk about the the, the uh, textured relationship between uh, Caucasian Jews and uh, uh, black black Jews, so they made it into this book. Uh, whereas, in the, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the prior book, uh, they're only a footnote. So I tried again. I had the unique opportunity, I guess, in the first half of the book to do a rewrite based upon. What I've learned in terms of my own work and other people's work over the last, over the last uh, 40 years, I got to tell you, in my seminar last spring with a number of my students, I had them read portions of the first book and portions in manuscript form of the second book and see if they could pick up on the comparisons. And to some extent, they did, which was very gratifying to me.
0: Sounds like a great exercise for graduate classes.
1: Well, at least it worked for me. I, I hope the students uh, uh, gained from that, uh, that exercise.
0: Well, as you've mentioned a couple of times, a real focus, especially of the second half of this book, is really looking at the inter relations between Jews and blacks in Harlem and its environs. Um, and certainly when people think of Harlem, um, African-Americans are often the first um, group they think of who are associated with this neighborhood. Um, but you really argue that there's a longer and really fascinating history of both interethnic cooperation and tension between blacks and Jews. So can you tell us a bit about the contours of these relationships?
1: Well, a, a good quarter of the book deals with black Jewish relations in Harlem from the turn of the 20th century up until the present day, and it appears it, it appears in different chapters. And I guess the first thing I would say about this is that um, I try to argue, and again, this is the advice of my professor of 40 years ago coming full circle, that there's no one Jewish voice or one Jewish view of African Americans, and similarly, there's no one black view of Jews over over this long haul. So, we could talk about this for hours, but just to give you a, a couple of highlights, uh, there are Jews who are, in the early 20th century, opposed to blacks moving into the neighborhood because they uh, fear that their presence would, that will diminish the value of their real estate holdings. When this happens, both the Anglo-Jewish press and the Yiddish press pillory them for uh, their activities. At the same time, you have... People like Joel Spingarn, a Jew, an educator, one of the founders of the NAACP, uh, fighting for integration in Harlem. Now, this may surprise some people, that even during the time period, when the overwhelming majority of people in Harlem, this is from the 1920s on, were African-Americans, there were places where African-Americans were not served, there were restaurants that were segregated in Harlem, There were movie theaters and uh, regular theaters where uh, blacks had to sit in the balcony. And there were a number of Jewish entrepreneurs, most notably uh, Leo Brecker and Frank Schiffman, who were the owners of the famous Apollo Theater, who were integrationists, who very much wanted now you can argue they 're integrationists because they wanted a large number of blacks to to uh, to come to their establishment, and that 's true, but they're also involved in integrationist activities and one of their and one of the people who recognized the contribution of of Frank Schiffman was uh, someone not other than uh, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, so again, the integrationist type of uh, uh, dynamic is played out here so what i what i 'm trying to say is about Jewish attitudes that you see Jews as cooperators, you see Jews as exploiters of blacks, you see Jews as a medium for black entrepreneurship, for example, um, records and other types of sheet music which, which was developed by black musicians and composers, Jews were the entrepreneurs that made it possible for them to sell their stuff on the American market. So the more I looked at this, the more I realized the complexity of this type of relationship. And then I deal with, at what point in time do you have the manifestations of anti-Semitism in Harlem? You know, uh, Shearer, there were three major riots in Harlem, 1935, 1943, and 1964. In each one of these cases, Jewish establishments, no, I want to say it this way, establishments owned by Jews, were among those establishments victimized. But to my way of thinking, what was absent from those types of conflagrations were any statements or many statements made by black rioters that were out to get the Jews. This was more uh, a riot than, than a, a, a pogrom. And I date the rise of significant black Jewish tension from the late 1960s to an event that did not take place in Harlem, but in New York, but had ramifications for Harlem as well. And I'm referring to the very contentious uh, teacher strike that began in Brooklyn, but it also spilled over uh, into Harlem. So uh, that I, I hope will be my contribution 40 years later to our continuing understanding of the complexities of black Jewish relations uh, in the United States. Much, much of the themes are played out with um, within Harlem. Look, by the way, Jews did not always get along with the uh, with the Irish, although they did get along quite well with the Italians in uh, in Harlem. And if you don't mind, since we talk, since I mentioned my family, uh, I'll tell you one quick family story. My father was a tough street kid. He ran with a Jewish gang in Harlem, and one day they decided to fight against the Irish kids across the no-man's land of the New York Central Railroad. My father didn't have a gun or a knife. All he had was a broomstick. So he said to his gang, okay, guys, let's run up the steps and fight the Irish kids. And my father ran up the steps and he looked behind him. He saw none of his gang members were running with him. So his message to me as a kid was, when you run up those steps, make sure there's someone behind you. And uh, (laughs) I think that that was a very good message. Uh, Deborah Dash Moore's grandfather, it's in the book, I don't mention her by name, but she gave me the source. Her grandfather, when he moved to Harlem, uh, uh, the story was uh, that's in the book about his being beaten up along with his, uh, his father by an Irish gang. So there, was, there were contentious times between Jews and Irish, uh, as well as some difficult times with African-Americans. So it's a, it's a complex story.
0: And as you've mentioned, you spend a lot of time talking about um, this, as you say, this nadir of um, Jewish black relations from about the 1950s to 1980s. And these are also the decades, as you note, that um, there really is this very um, potent decline of Jewish life in Harlem at the time. And I'm wondering, as Jews left Harlem, um, what happened to the institutions they built? Do they stay? Do they migrate with their members? What's, why are Jews leaving and what happens?
1: Well, the Jews leave Harlem en masse in the in the period before the Great Depression. One of the things that New York City does, and by the way, significant numbers of Jews at that point are leaving the Lower East Side, and they're leaving early Williamsburg and Brownsville, be this it may, but they're leaving because during World War One, there's a tremendous amount of overcrowding in the city. And the city fathers, I'll call them the city fathers because women had just gotten the right to vote in their wisdom in the early 1920s, passed a very important real estate law, which says if you build a multiple dwelling an apartment building in an underdeveloped place in the city, we'll exempt you from 10 years of real estate taxes. So under that mandate... Uh, whole new communities are grown up in other parts of the city, which Deborah Moore talks about extensively in At Home in America, whether it's the Grand Concourse in the Bronx or, again, the Grox live off the Grand Concourse because the Grand Concourse was grand. Davidson Avenue is not nearly as grand. Uh, uh, the Upper West Side, Washington Heights, um, uh, Bensonhurst, Borough Park, Flatbush in Queens, Jamaica, to some extent. Um uh, there's one area in Queens which is off-limits to Jews, and that's Forest Hills, which was uh, where the old tennis stadium was. And just as another, a last Garak reference, one of my father's brothers who became an immigration lawyer, he ended up late in his life living in Forest Hills Gardens, which had been off-limits to Jews until after World War II. Now, as far as the institutions are concerned, look, At one point, I argue that there were over 100 synagogues or congregations in Harlem. Most of them were storefronts, shibbles, as you would call them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The grand synagogues of Harlem, which are now churches, which I show when I do walking tours of Harlem, uh, most of them moved to the west side, whether it's congregation or tzedek, or the institutional synagogue, or sharet tzedek, or Anshe chesed, all of them end up in the 1920s um, in the uh, the newly developed west part of Manhattan, and a few of them migrate to, uh, uh, to the Bronx. But those who belong to ephemeral uh, synagogues, frankly, without being too maudlin about it, the only place you can really find evidence of these synagogues in Harlem is if you go to some of the cemeteries in New Jersey, like where my... Uh, Grandparents and parents are buried in Lodi, New Jersey. If you go there, there's a whole section and you see the names of these congregations that uh, are no more. These were Landsmanshaft congregations, you know, congregations of people in the old, uh, old hometown. So by 1930, the Jewish population of Harlem has shrunk from approximately 175,000 Jews, which was made the largest Jewish community in the entire, second largest Jewish community in the entire country, Uh, To about 5000 Jews and Jews do not begin returning as residents of Harlem until the last 10, 15 years. I can't give you numbers, but they're clearly a significant component in um, uh, the Caucasian uh, population within a gentrified Harlem.
0: Well, let's turn to this um, question of revival, which um, is certainly a very um, new contribution to the literature on American Jewry. Why do you think in the past 10 to 15 years, um, Harlem has once again um, witnessed a revival of its Jewish community? And since you mentioned that the JCC is just opening now, it's probably not because of its institutions. What are the pull factors
1: here? Well, the the JCC is trying to convince Jews who've moved to Harlem to identify Jewishly. Um, I argued in one of my earlier books called Jews in Gotham that even at the most difficult times for New York City in the 1970s, there was incipient gentrification going on in certain neighborhoods like like, uh, Columbus Avenue in the 80s and 90s, which... As a kid, I remember being a very tough, broken-down neighborhood. So gentrification has a lot to do, it's not only a Jewish story, it's a New York story, By desire of people uh, to no longer live in suburbia and to fight their way into the city uh, every day. And in some respect, the Harlem story is a little bit later than other places, like in Brooklyn or in Manhattan, but that same desire to live within the city and to take part in so many of the good things the city has to offer uh, is a very important pull factor. And Shira, you know, what it it tells me is, again, going full circle, is that some of the same motivation that uh, led people like the uh, fictional character David Levinsky to move uptown to live in close proximity to his work downtown by virtue of taking the subways uh, is repeating itself today. Now the issue is far for me. The issue, and you uh, know, I'm very clear about it in my own mind. The issue for for me, in terms of these neighborhoods, is to what ex- Jews seem to be very comfortable living in a multicultural neighborhood. Uh, the question is, in terms of Jewish identity, whether these gentrifiers. And again, it's not only a Harlem story, where these gentrifiers want to live a Jewish life in 21st century New York, which reflects the larger malaise of American Jewry today. Uh, I believe we are living in America at a time, notwithstanding some of the anti-Semitism that we've seen during this most recent um, electoral cycle. We're living in a period where Jews are accepted more than any other time in our history. Mm-hmm. And the issue for us as Jews, and as scholars looking at this this issue, is to what extent Jews who are so comfortable in America want to identify Jewishly. So the Harlem story is part of a larger story of Jewish identity, and it's also a story of our city of New York being a dynamic city, constantly going through periods of, periods of change. So, look, uh, economically speaking, it's almost... Uh, impossible for middle-class people to buy these brownstones, which, mm-hmm. which date back to the 1880s. Um, um, I mentioned in the book that I became aware of Harlem gentrification because a young couple read the original book and wrote to me and said, you ought to meet us because Jews are back. And uh, I referenced them in the Gotham book and they appear in this book, uh, in this new book as well. So uh, apart from being a scholarly endeavor, I hope you hear that uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun revisiting Harlem.
0: Very much so. And let me ask you, um, certainly after you publish a new book, you're entitled to some relaxation. But have you already started thinking about your next
1: project? I never relax, okay? <laughs> I never I never relax. Well, it turns out that... Um, I'm now engaged in a project that, uh, and I have a publisher for this project, Uh, I solicited the um, uh, 18 colleagues of mine, what I call the usual suspects, senior people in the field of American Jewish history, to write memoirs about how they got involved in studying American Jewish history the nature of the field and the evolution of American Jewish historiography. Uh, and the book is called On Becoming an American Jewish Historian. So people like Deborah and Hassia and Jonathan and people of that sort are, have been solicited and are all going to write with me and for me. There are two books already in the field. There's a book called Voices of Women Historians, which talks about how women, how women's history evolved, And there's a book called Ethnic Historians and the Mainstream. Mm -hmm. So it's a historiographical work. I think it has a bit of a niche audience, uh, but it gives us a chance to reflect upon how we became interested in the field, how the field developed, and what are the prospects for American Jewish history. It's a little bit more internally written than the Harlem book, but I I think people who are interested in um, the growth of the humanities in America will be... uh, interested in that book uh, as well. So I'm engaged in that book. And uh, even as I say, I never rest. I'm looking for another big project. But uh, in the meantime, you're right. Uh, let's enjoy the ride as uh, as I'm uh, rotting through this book at this point.
0: Well, Jeffrey, thanks again for being on the show. Again, everyone, please check out The Jews of Harlem The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community by Jeffrey Gurak, published in 2016 by New York University Press. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.